We read together uh, from the book of Daniel, chapter 10, starting at uh, verse 1, and reading on to chapter 11 at verse 1 in that chapter. Um, you'll find that reading in your Black Church Bibles at page 748. So Daniel 10, hear the word of God. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz round his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. 
Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Eric, thank you for reading for us. It's great to have the Bible read so well and so clearly. Um, it says in the end of chapter 1 that Daniel understood the word and understood the vision. And that's a pretty good prayer for us to pray as we come to this passage. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you too that as we read your word, you grant us understanding by your Spirit. And we pray, Lord God, that you would do that for us this evening. Help us to understand what you have said. And Lord God, too, that as we understand it, it would change our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the West, since the Enlightenment, that's the sort of 1700s and, and beyond, uh, with its emphasis on scientific reason as the only way to know the truth, belief, not just in God, but really in, in anything spiritual, good or evil, it's gone out of fashion. And that's not the case for other parts of the world, particularly in the global south. But here in the West, there's a consistent belief that the physical and material world is the only true reality, that there is no spiritual. To believe in spiritual things or a spiritual realm is pure fancy. It's a delusion best left in the Dark Ages or to Hollywood. Science can't test it empirically. We can't see it, so it must not exist. That's how the thought goes. And, and any sane or reasonable person should come to that conclusion. Now, just to recognise, there's some inconsistency in our culture in this regard. Uh, just watch the sort of most haunted shows that you see on certain TV channels. Or listen even to poems at secular funerals that declare that our lost loved ones look down on us in some way. Or just simply read the hashtags from all sorts of people declaring thoughts and prayers. But by and large, if you believe in an invisible spiritual realm, a spiritual reality, angels, demons, God, Satan, heaven or hell, then frankly you're a fool. 
And so this passage in Daniel, therefore, may be a bit of a struggle for us as Western people on the whole to get our heads around this evening. Because what we have here is the beginning of a final vision given to Daniel by God. It carries on from here all the way through the rest of the book to the end of chapter 12. And what we see flies in the face of the contemporary Western view. Because here it's as if God draws back the curtains of the material world and allows Daniel to peer through into the invisible spiritual realm that exists beyond it. And what he sees when the curtain is drawn back is spiritual battle. On the back of the service sheet, I've given you just the structure of this passage at the top of it. Uh, if you find that interesting and helpful, um, that'd be great. But first, but really, we're going to think about the two principles, the two big principles that we can learn uh, from this vision. Here's the first one. That spiritual opposition lies behind human opposition to God's people. So verses 1 to 4 uh, give us the setting of this vision. Verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. What we see in verse 1 is really a headline for the whole of chapters 10 to 12. A revelation, a word, that was given to Daniel... And it's all about a war. It's about a great conflict that's coming. He came to understand this vision through a, uh, understand this through a vision that he uh, received. But the first thing to notice is that it's given a very specific uh, historical setting. We're told it comes during the third year of the reign of the Persian emperor Cyrus. That's 536 BC. Now this is a really important detail. We know from the book of Ezra um, in, the, in the Old Testament that in the first year of Cyrus's reign, the Lord moved his heart to allow the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and to start to rebuild the city and particularly to rebuild the temple. And Daniel, who by now is a very old man, has been praying for that for all of his life. In chapter 9, we heard that Daniel had learned that the 70 years of exile were up, and he's been praying and he's been confessing their sins that God would allow them to return. And indeed, the first wave of people, they do return home. It's this great news, it's a time of great rejoicing. And to begin with, the first two years, the work rebuild goes really, really well. It's all very exciting. The the altar is laid down. The foundations of the temple have begun. It's in Ezra chapter 3 and 4. So why is Daniel so upset in verse 2? Just look at verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Why so upset? 
Well, we aren't given here an explicit reason. Uh, It could be that he's sad for himself, as he's not been able to travel back to make the journey, and probably just because he's too old. He'd be in his his 80s or 90s by this time. Perhaps he realises that he's never going to return there. And that feeling could be more acute at at this time, so that we're given a a date in the year in verse 4, and that date is over Passover, the Jewish Passover festival. So perhaps his distance from home just feels all the greater um, at that time. But I think there is a stronger possibility. You see, after two years back in Jerusalem, by the time Daniel has this vision, the work on the temple has largely ground to a halt. And we can read about that in Ezra chapter 4. Ezra tells us that the work has stopped, and it stopped because there's been opposition from a bunch of new enemies, uh, the people who have moved in around the city of Jerusalem. And we know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that that word travels back and forth between Babylon and Jerusalem on a regular basis, and it's likely that Daniel hears of this opposition. So by the time of this vision, the hopes that he had for the restoration of his people, they've stalled, and his people are suffering again. And actually this echoes what Daniel had been told in chapter 9, that the return and the rebuilding would not, be, uh, would not bring an end to the suffering of God's people. So this third year of Cyrus's reign, probably for a host of reasons for Daniel, is a time of great discouragement. He's in mourning, and he fasts, at least from the comforts of the royal Babylonian court. He's identifying with the suffering of his people, mourning with them. But it's not just that, because we know from verse 12 that this is Daniel humbling himself before God and dedicating his heart to praying for understanding as to what's going on. Now, maybe those of us who've been Christians uh, for a while, we've experienced something like this. We look back over our lives and we can see that there have been times of great encouragement and excitement, great growth, forward movement. But then comes hardship and opposition and progress is halted. Or maybe we've watched with, like Daniel does, maybe we've watched on and We've seen those whom we love in the Lord face struggles and dealing with great discouragement in their situation. Maybe you can think of someone who perhaps you've put loads of time into, you've encouraged and prayed for, and they were going really well, but then they faced some opposition and they've just stalled, or they've taken a backward step, and you feel for them, and you pray for them, and you ask God to help you understand what's going on. This is what Daniel does. And God here graciously reveals to Daniel through this vision what Daniel could not previously see. And that is that there is a battle going on in the spiritual realm. So we enter verse 4, we find Daniel by the river Tigris. And he looks up and he sees a startling figure, verse 5. A man in linen 
who glows and dazzles and booms with this voice like a great roaring crowd. And we wonder, who is he? Verse 6, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Is it an angel? Well, it could be. Angels are sometimes described like this in places like Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel 9. But in the book of Daniel, we've had a heavenly figure appear before. Think back to Daniel chapter 3, the figure in the furnace who saved Daniel's three friends. Nebuchadnezzar said of him that he was like a son of the gods. And then the son of man in Daniel 7, the divine king who will rule God's kingdom, the pre-incarnate person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Could this be him? Well, I think so. For two reasons. One, in verse 16, Daniel calls him my Lord. But then also, as we were to read forwards in the Bible, and we get to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, we'd see that the Apostle John, he describes the risen and ascended and crowned Lord Jesus Christ just like this figure. Now, all those who are with Daniel, they don't see this figure, but they flee in terror, verse 7. And Daniel himself, he's left utterly helpless by the vision, isn't he? He's crushed to the ground, he's overwhelmed, he becomes like a dead man, no strength, white as a sheet, he pretty much passes out there and then. As we read this for the first time, we might think, look, surely poor old Daniel, he's going to sort of kick the bucket in a minute, isn't he? But no, this figure wants to speak to him. He's woken up, he's lifted to his hands and his knees, and trembling, he's told to listen up. And what's revealed to him is just astonishing. Let me read from verse 11. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he'd spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Okay, so now the content of the the days left to come, this great vision, that's what's coming. That's going to come in chapters 11 and 12 as we look at it over the next two weeks. But what's this stuff about princes all about? What's going on here? Well, the term prince is a term with a, a range of meanings. It can just mean just son of the king, like the way that we normally use it. 
but it can also mean ruler or head, or commonly it can, it can mean captain, like a military uh, leader of a military unit. And in these verses, it's used twice, isn't it? It's used once for this opponent who has delayed him, and it's used once of Michael. Now, Michael, we're told, in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, is one of the archangels of God. So this verse then is telling us that the Son of Man was sent by God when Daniel began his prayers, but that while on his way, he was held up for three weeks in Persia, fighting the prince of the Persian kingdom. This is the evil equivalent of Michael, the angel. So in other words, he's been held up by fighting a spiritual being who represents the empire of Persia, the human kings of Persia, who oppose God's purposes. And battle was engaged. Now, notice that these evil forces, powerful that they were, at best they could only delay and not defeat God's purposes. The battle against this evil angelic being was then taken on by Michael so that the Son of Man could come on to meet and encourage Daniel. It's pretty astonishing stuff, isn't it? Now, we don't know exactly how this works, of course. We don't know what, what form this spiritual warfare takes. But we are being told that it's going on. I look down at the end of our passage, verse 20, all the way through to 11, verse 1. We find out there that the battle isn't over yet. He's going back into the fray to fight against not just the, uh, the one evil spiritual power of Persia, but also another one who will come later uh, with the Greek empire. And verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, it seems that this heavenly figure and Michael they're a bit of a tag team because back in Darius's reign he came to Michael's aid instead now what does this all mean what and not just what does it mean but why does God reveal this to Daniel well because God wants Daniel to know and us to know that behind human opposition that his people are experiencing lies spiritual demonic power. See, Daniel's people are not just suffering at the hands of human enemies. There's something else going on. He's looking through the curtain to see what's going on. And the testimony of the Scriptures is that there is battle going on in the spiritual realm. Battle which mirrors the human battle that God's people have against those who hate them and who wish to destroy them. Now this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is, becomes really clear in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul there famously teaches exactly this in Ephesians 6. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, that's the, the prince's word in Greek there, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Paul's not saying that there aren't human beings who hate Christians and who persecute them. He's saying that, that human beings who oppose the church are part of a bigger spiritual battle. Political regimes who oppress Christians and churches are not just human evil, as awful as that is. Now, if we were to pull back the curtain, we would see the greater horrors of spiritual demonic power at work. Let's just think about that historically. When the Roman emperors sought to eradicate the church from its lands, throwing Christians to the lions and burning them alive at their garden parties, was it really just human beings acting wickedly? Or can we really just look back a few years ago what happened under ISIS-controlled Iraq and Syria on such a large scale to the beheadings and the abuse and the crucifixions? Can we really just say that that's just human evil? Well, of course we can't. To reduce it down to just social or psychological factors, that's not satisfactory, is it? This chapter shows us, and the Apostle Paul affirms, spiritual opposition lies behind human opposition to God's people. And that would be terrifying were it not for this truth also, that the Son of Man and his angels are fighting for us. And just think about this, or what explanation can we give for the flourishing and explosive growth of the church in areas of persecution? How do we explain that? In places like the Roman Empire, and in places like China today, or Iran today, could it be that as the people of God pray, that the Son of Man and Michael and the other angelic beings are doing battle for us, and winning through. Daniel 10 tells us that this is exactly what's going on. And nevertheless, knowing that we're involved in something as awesome and as terrifying as that, well, how does that make us feel? Well, I suspect it makes us feel like Daniel feels weak, pretty weak. And if we were under intense persecution now even more weak but praise God because he doesn't just want to inform us that there is a spiritual battle he wants to strengthen us to stand in the spiritual battle that brings us to our second point by prayer God gives his servants strength to stand on the spiritual battlefield Let's look at Daniel. Maybe you noticed this as it was being read. Daniel's been pouring out his heart to God in this mournful prayer. But every time he finds out more information about what's going on, the nature of the struggle, he just gets weaker and weaker. He just wants to sleep. He's pale. He's trembling. He's speechless. He's on the floor emotionally and literally. And we're faced with opposition and hardship in our lives and struggles. 
when we're in the middle of the battle, that's just how we feel, isn't it? We feel like we're at our end. And all we want to do is weep and sleep. But the Lord is determined to minister his grace to this praying servant. Verse 12 revealed that this heavenly figure is sent by God in response to his prayers. Verse 12, he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. He's come at God's command in response to Daniel's prayers to bring him encouragement. And just look at how gently he's treated halfway through verse 9. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And listen to what he says. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. It's a gracious hand to lift him up and gracious words of love towards him. Then again in verse 15 to 17, when Daniel's too weak to speak even, another gracious touch. And then again in verse 18, another touch followed by these gracious words, verse 19. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong, and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. See, God knows Daniel's weak. He knows he's discouraged. That he sees the forces stacked against him and he, and he knows he can't stand alone against the foes and he's at his end and he's on the edge of utter defeat. But the great news of Daniel 10 is that God is gracious and kind to his praying servant. Spiritually, he lifts him to his feet. He gives him the strength to stand in the coming battle. And he grants him spiritual help to encourage him through his word. O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Now, of course, this is exactly how the Lord treats us when we call to him in prayer, isn't it? But before we think about how it applies to us, there's one more person we must consider. Centuries later, this heavenly figure, the awesome son of man, would take upon himself human flesh. He'd become the man, Jesus Christ, and in doing that, quite remarkably, he would also take on the weakness of human flesh. He too would feel weak physically, emotionally, psychologically, and become discouraged. On the night before his death, in the moment of greatest weakness, and in the face of the battle that he knew was coming, Luke tells us in his account that on the Mount of Olives, 
Jesus withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. This was his prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then we're told this, verse 43 of Luke 22. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So why is it that at the moment, at that moment in history, God sends an angel to strengthen his servant Jesus? Well, it's because although the battle was raging in Daniel's time, it's before the cross that the spiritual opposition to God's plan reaches its peak. See, the Son of Man himself has now become a man with all his weakness. He's come to earth to fight and defeat the spiritual forces of evil at the cross, to break their power for the sake of God's people. And there in Gethsemane, with the battle raging in the heavens, where the Son of Man in his humanity is at his weakest, he needs encouragement, and so he kneels and prays to his Father, and God strengthens his greatest servant with supernatural aid so that he can stand firm in the critical moment and win. The great hymn says, In pity angels beheld him and came from the the world of light to comfort him in the sorrows that he bore for my soul that night. This is what he does. Colossians 2 verse 15 says that not only did Jesus pay for the sins of God's people through his death, but that also he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's a remarkable thing that Jesus would take on humanity and become weak and battle for us. But he did, and then he won. And we live this side of that victory. And so as we close, we're going to ask, well, what does that mean for us? There are three things, I think, that we can apply to us. First of all, we can stand firm in Christ's victory. See, Daniel's given this knowledge through this vision just before the future is revealed to him. And the future, even though it's glorious in the, in the very end, it's for God's people full of hardship and suffering. See, Daniel knows from the previous visions that God reigns, but also that it won't always feel like that. And so this this is given to him to strengthen him. And this knowledge from Daniel 10 and from uh, what the Lord Jesus has done for us means that we can do what the Apostle Paul says to do in Ephesians 6, that we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. So in view of Christ's victory and the assurance that we have of spiritual help in our times of need, or we can have a new determination to endure 
whatever evil opposition comes our way. And we can know that because he is fighting for us, that when we stand firm, we are on the winning side. That's the first thing. We can stand firm in Christ's victory. Second, we can have great confidence, greater confidence than Daniel, to pray. So though evil's not yet fully destroyed, the battle has been decisively won by Jesus and the powers arrayed against God's people are broken. They're fleeing from those who stand firm in Christ. We don't need to fear spiritual evil because Christ has already defeated it. Daniel didn't know that, but we know that now. In particular, we can pray with confidence, asking for his aid. Actually, this is how Paul concludes his description of the armour of God in Ephesians 6. He tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. See, Daniel 10 helps us to know that, that our prayers really can change outcomes. And this is true in all sorts of circumstances. It's true when we battle sin and discouragement. It's true when we look out into the world and we see spiritual opposition to the gospel. We can pray for the persecuted church in other nations. And we can pray for our friends and our neighbours who are held captive by the evil one in unbelief. And we can trust that God can break Satan's hold over them. See, we can be confident to ask the Lord for his help and that he hears and answers our prayers for aid. So we can stand firm in Christ's victory. We can have greater confidence than Daniel to pray and know that our prayers will have real effect. And then third, well, we can have the comfort of knowing that when we feel discouraged, when things seem to be going wrong, that God will send spiritual strength to us. The Son of Man has won the battle. He sends his Spirit to strengthen us. And Hebrews 1 even tells us that he still sends his angels to serve us. See, in and through his grace, he strengthens even the weakest of servants to stand firm on the spiritual battlefield. That's really good news for us, and it's really good news for you, particularly tonight if you're feeling weak. It's good news for the weak. Be encouraged. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that the words that you spoke to Daniel to encourage him are words that you speak to your children. That We are greatly loved, that we need not fear, that we can have peace, and that we are to be strong and of good courage as we take our stand against the devil's schemes. We thank you that Christ has won the great battle for us at the cross, and we thank you that he sends his Spirit to us to strengthen us each day. And Father God, we pray particularly this evening for those who feel weak, for those who feel the battle is being lost, for those who are suffering, 
for those who are struggling with sin. And Lord God, we pray particularly for our world, which seems to be so dark. And Lord God, we pray that the hope and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would break in and save many. In Jesus' name, amen.